nestled in the highest mountain region in the world, separated by treacherous passages, boundless desert, and locked between the world's two most populous nations. Tibet is home to an ancient people and a religion that transcends much of modernity. Maintaining this position has required a multitude of strategies over the centuries, including alliances ranging from the Mongolian Khanates to the CIA, as well as forging a short-lived empire of their own. Today we are joined by Dharma King, a scholar of Tibet and the Buddhist religion, to help us better understand this storied people and tradition. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to Hello, welcome to the show. Today I am joined by uh, everyone, Adam, Hans, Hank are all here, as well as uh, special guest, Dharma King. How, uh, how are you, Dharma King? Doing all right. How are you guys? Good, good. Thank you for coming on. Today, we're going to be discussing the mystery kingdom of Tibet, which has long been a source of fascination to Westerners in the form of you know, explorers, occultists, uh, missionaries, the Waffen SS, Agent Dale Cooper, uh, tourists, and you know, more recently, Richard Gere. Richard here, and you also had it as an important uh, pivot in geopolitics, both for the great game as practiced by the British Empire, and then later the Cold War and the CIA. Uh, and of course, the uh, yeah, Richard Gere, the, it became a cause celeb for Western liberals. So yeah. it, it's always been a, a point of fascination, and I myself have been fascinated by it. So DK is joining us today to discuss that. I suppose what we'll be doing is starting with a brief, uh, as brief as you'd like to make it, overview of the history of Tibet. I think it's, I mean, it, the Tibetan Plateau, as I understand it, is I believe the largest, the, the sorry, the highest plateau in the world. I, I think the average is something around 14,000 feet. I think Lhasa is at, uh, uh, what, 13,000? I think 12, 13, I think, yeah. Okay, well, where, where would yeah, you like well, to get started? Then? Yeah, I think I think an overview generally of Tibetan history would be helpful um, to sort of contextualize what was going on in the aftermath of the uh, the end of the European War. So Tibetans understand their history to begin with the uh, sexual union of a monkey and a rock ogress. Um, and they say that these were the parents of the first Tibetan um People have speculated, and I am inclined to agree. I think there was actually some genetic study that indicated that the um, high altitude adaptation of Tibetans was the result, at least in part, of some pre-homo pre sapiens hominids 
who were there. So there's like some, you know, kind of truth to this narrative. But in any case, the um, Tibetan history really starts around the year 600 with the rise of the Tibetan Empire, which was the terror of Asia. Um, in particular, the um, the the one of the early Tibetan kings who who really consolidated the empire on the strength of its of its military um, forced uh, the the most important three neighboring powers to give him a wife. So he had a Chinese wife, he had a Nepali wife, and he had a Tibetan wife. And uh, and I think it was the I believe it was the Chinese wife who um, had a statue commission that is still to this day in Lhasa. You can go visit. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a really, really um, important, you know, holy place for Tibetan Buddhists. This was also a period where, for this, is, this lasted about 300 years. Um, they were extracting tribute from their neighbors. <laughs> and uh, th- this is where also the, the, there's a kind of in, an important contemporaneous development, which was the development of, of um, tantric Buddhism in India. I'm not going to go so much into the history of Buddhism, but basically um starting around this time around the year 600 also you start and then accelerating through for the next 3 400 years you had a movement in india that was increasingly calling itself tantra that um was was centered around what you could call a royal metaphor where like a tantric practitioner was a sorcerer who commanded political power and the, this was the idea of also of what what you call the mandala. Like in in um, in Indian political theory, a mandala, which also just could mean circle, it's like you're at the top of your palace and you look around and everything you see is your mandala, right? And I mean, again, this is, this is really complicated, but the point is that there's a kind of religious, there's a there's a religious metaphor for political power. There's a religious understanding of the na- the, the, the the relationship between politics and religion in this kind of a feudal society are, are very much part of this story. And, and so when you, when you see later people to refer to the Dalai Lama as a God King and this kind of thing, that's where that's coming from ultimately is, is this Royal or Imperial metaphor in the religion of, in Buddhist religion. Um, and, and that was particularly important for the, the so-called old school or the Nyingma tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, um, which was very closely associated with, the dy- the imperial dynasty of Tibet, but then around the year 900, the um, the empire collapsed, and there was a period of dissolution. And this is the other kind of big picture important thing to understand is um, the <laughs> as much as it pains me to admit it, the Chinese are not entirely wrong in in pointing out not so much that Tibet has always been a part of China. That's ridiculous, but that Tibet as a geopolitical entity really didn't exist until about 1912. And I'll get to that in a, in a minute. But the, the point is that between about the year 900 and about 1912, there was no one Tibet. What you had was an extension of the North Indian tantric Buddhist feudal aristocratic system where giant monasteries essentially acted as feudal lords over, you know, neighboring tracts and and essentially employed, you know, serfs, the local population were serfs who owed the monastery a certain amount of labor or money or whatever. 
um, and and that was the source of their power. So you really had like kind of local competing feudal fiefdoms centered around the monastery. A lot of Tibetan monasteries are also called zong, which is a word that means fortress. And they func- They were fortresses. And and that was, you know, when the Chinese invaded, they treated the monasteries as fortresses. And, you know, both on, in terms of a, a position to attack and, you know, having taken over as a, as a position as, as a fort, as an armed position for Chinese troops to operate out of. Also, of course, that was, you know, de- intended to demoralize the Tibetans and so on. But, but, you know, the, this, this, uh, there's a very famous story um, about a a particularly naughty warlord um, from this around this period in the in the in the aftermath of the collapse of the Tibetan period of the Tibetan Empire, who um, was basically just a gangster. Like he basically he was he was a lama. He was you know he was a religious authority and he was the head of a monastery and this whole thing. But he was he was charging tolls on this toll road in central Tibet. And he in he was nominally under the authority of um, the the kind of the second major tradition to arise that arose during this time, the Kagyu tradition. Um, and so he was under the he was he was nominally a part of the Kagyu tradition, in particular Karma Kagyu. Um, but you know he was kind of just off doing his own thing, and people were really chafing under the yoke of this uh, this thug. So the head of the of the karma kagyu, the karmapa as he's called, you know, sort of went to go pay him a visit and see what the deal was. And uh, he the story is that he did a little dance and grabbed the finger of the karmapa as a, in a gesture of obeisance, and then uh, promptly donate. He just said, "Okay, I'm done," and he went to go you know live his life in solitary retreat. He gave up his position and all of the um, all the wealth and and the sort of political power that he had accumulated went to the Karmapa. And uh, that is the kind of like, I guess the, the next, well, okay. So there's, there's in the next phase, there's two important developments. The one is the, is the rise of the Karmakagyu tradition over the next couple hundred years um, in central Tibet, which uh, basically at the time of the eventual rise of the Dalai Lamas, the the dominant power was not the Dalai Lama, it was the Karmakagyu tradition, who who had by that point consolidated political power in in central Tibet. But the the other thing that was going on was a close association between the Tibetans and the Mongols. Uh, From the the, the, the real central figure here is, is Kublai Khan, who, um, for, for reasons I, I don't think it's entirely clear, but basically he got in, he was interested in, you know, but he, the, the story that I heard was he was interested in magical power. That's the other thing is, you know, part of the image of Tibet is as a repository of esoteric knowledge and magic, um, which I think, I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, my cards on the table, that's true to some extent, but, uh, you know, Kublai Khan as a, you know, big conqueror type guy was interested in, uh, you know, all kinds of forms of power. And so he made contact with um, uh, the third major tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, the Sakya tradition, the Sakya school. And they established a relationship that was the, both the model for Tibetan relations with the rest of East Asia moving forward and ultimately the source of the Chinese claim to sovereignty over Tibet. The, the the way that they characterized the relationship was as pa- patron and priest. So Kublai Khan was the patron, and Pakpa was the name of the Sakya, um, one of the Sakya patriarchs. Um, pa- Pakpa was the priest, right? And so they had this this relationship. And so the, the idea was, you know, Mongolia, the Mongol, you know, the Golden Horde would provide security for Tibet. 
in exchange for the ritual services of um, provided by the Tibetans. And, and that was really the model moving forward. And that was that was the the kind of the heart of the the problem is, you know, when you outsource your security, it creates issues, particularly in a fractious political environment um, where you don't have a single polity. You have these, you know, feudal kingdoms. I mean, kingdom can be is a kind of overblown. Term. I mean, all, most of them were just like a single valley or a couple towns. Right. Um and and it was a it was a real issue. So uh, the 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 word Dalai is not a Tibetan word; it is a Mongolian word. And the when when we talk about the Dalai Lamas, right, we're talking about a a series of reincarnations of what is supposed what is understood to be, in some sense, the same person. This is kind of theologically complicated or philosophically complicated. I don't want to know if I want to go there yet, but the, but the, the bottom line is um, the, the interesting thing, I guess I should say is that the, the, the individual who is now referred to as quote, the first Dalai Lama was not in his ni- lifetime known as the Dalai Lama at all. <laughs> the, the first Dalai Lama in the sense of the first of these individuals who was designated as the Dalai Lama was what we, who the, and the person who we now call the third Dalai Lama who was invited by the by Altan Khan of of the Mongols in 1569, uh, and eventually he was, he initially declined, but eventually accepted the Khan's offer. As I mean, I'm sure eventually you just have to accept these kinds of offers um, to you know go to the court of the Mongols in 1571, and that what like because of the the central role of the Mongols in the Chinese Imperium, again just consolidated this perception of. Tibet as some, you know, there's this, there's this question of this relationship between Tibet and the Mongols. And, you know, periodically the Mongols would invade and periodically there was this, these issues, but that's the heart of it. In any case, so the, the, the key point here is that the fourth Dalai Lama was a Mongolian. He was born in, he was, a, I, believe, I believe he was ethnically Mongolian, but in any case, he was born in, in uh, regional Mongolia. And the fifth Dalai Lama, who's, who's called the great fifth Dalai Lama, who was the first person to really unify Tibet to, to, to any extent, did so with the military assistance of Gushi Khan and the Mongolians. And he did, like, he basically kicked out the Karma Kagyus from their position of authority in central Tibet with the backing of the Mongol army. And that arrangement that the great fifth Dalai Lama put in place um, this, this kind of security arrangement with Mongolia and the idea of his tradition, which is the, the, the last of the major schools, there's a fifth, but I won't mention the Jonangs, but the, the fourth major tradition is the, is the Geluk school or tradition. And that is the tradition of the Dalai Lama, of the Dalai Lamas. Um, that, that is the, the, the sort of, if you go to Mongolia or these kind of regions, these far flung Siberian regions where they practice Buddhism, it's primarily Geluk because of this historical, they just, they just love the Geluk tradition. Um, and, and it was, it was this, this arrangement, this idea of like the Dalai Lama as the God King of Tibet starts really with the fifth Dalai Lama, um, and, and his rise as the supreme political authority in central Tibet backed by the Mongols. Um, and that that persisted all the way up until the collapse of the Qing dynasty in in 1912. It's important to understand, like, you know, the collapses, as we all know, don't happen all at once. So de facto, Tibet had 
really been pretty independent for some time, you know, uh, from the late 19th century. But it wasn't until, I believe, 1912 that, you know, when they were sort of, exp- they, they had to deal with um, the British and they had to deal with the Western powers and they had, you know, they, 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 they were, at, they were, you know, there was this question of, because historically every, all these, uh, the foreign affairs of the Tibetan people or the representatives had always gone through the Chinese court ultimately for the past 300 years. Um, at that point, the, the, the 13th Dalai Lama, the, the predecessor to the current Dalai Lama, explicitly said, you know, no, we are not under the Chinese. We are our own independent nation under, you know, under these kind of uh, Westphalian rules. And that's where you get, if you ever see like a Tibetan flag, that's where that comes from, is, is that it's essentially the, the flag of the 1912 geopolitical state of autonomous Tibet. Um, that said, and, and to sort of wrap up, because, you know, the, 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 then there's, you know, the, the Chinese invasion happens not too long after, as soon as the, the collapse of the Qing is resolved and, and the, the Kuomintang is, is defeated by the Chinese Communist Party and the Red Army. But um, it, it's important to understand that really at no point in this entire process, like, you, you okay, you could say that the, um, that there is a, you know, a Tibet, a central Tibet that is ruled over by the Dalai Lama. But um, the, the three major Tibetan regions of, you know, the central Tibet or Utsang, uh, Amdo in the north and Kham in the east, are um, very different from each other, very remote, both geographically and communications wise, but also importantly, in terms of language, um, you know, in a, in a way that's in many ways analogous to like, you know, Europe prior to the nationalist movements of the 19th century, um, to talk about a Tibetan language is kind of, mm, you have a classical written language that everyone can read, kind of like Latin, but it's different from the spoken language and the spoken languages differ from each other. Um, and I, I don't think it's too doxy to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay, at, you know, I have some facility with spoken Tibetan, but I can't understand people from Amdo and I can barely understand people from Kham. Um, you know, the, the please, please, yeah. I have a question without getting too much into the weeds. I am curious what is known about religious practices on the Tibetan plateau prior to the appearance of the Yeah, that's a great Buddha. question. Yeah, so there's because a, there's a tr- I, I will yes. add to, um, <clears throat> because I'm just going to throw this on the table. There were members of the SS expedition that took place in 1938 uh, that believed it was potentially some uh, ancient Aryan capital. <laughs> I can actually totally see the connection. So now that you mention it, so okay, so this is getting. I'm gonna try to not get too into the weeds, but 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 uh, whatever. So in Buddhism, like all Buddhism, we we talk about like there's not just one Buddha. Like our, when we say the Buddha, we mean you know there's a historical person Shakyamuni or, or you know uh, Siddhartha Gautama, who you know became a Buddha in recorded history about 2,500 years ago. But there are actually infinite Buddhas in infinite worlds. And, and even in our world, there are going to, there have been, there were prior Buddhas and there will be future Buddhas. Shakyamuni Buddha is only the fourth Buddha out of a thousand or a thousand and two around it. Let's say about a thousand will appear on our world over time. Um, so prior to the introduction of Buddhism in Tibet, uh, there, uh, 
there was this kind of shamanistic Central Asian religion that's called Bun, that at the time, and really to this day, I mean, first of all, there still are, there are Bunpos. There are, there is like actual people who just practice Bun. And it's a, you know, it's, it's a full-fledged, you know, you could say religion. Um, it, it's, unc- it's really not at all clear what that looked like at the time. It, it, it is connected to the collapse of the Tibetan Empire. Um, there were, it was more of a political force back then. And the sort of received history is it was a Bunpo. Basically, the, 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 the throne passed to a Bunpo rather than a Buddhist. And his persecution of Buddhism caused his assassination, which in turn caused the collapse of the Tibetan Empire. Now there's, you know, who knows what, what, what really happened, but that's how the story is told today. The, the point I wanted to make, though, about the 1938 expedition is um, nowadays the Bunpos refer, they consider themselves to be the disciples of the previous Buddha in the third Buddha who would have lived about 40,000 years ago. So if you're into like the Hyperborean, Thulean thing and like ancient prehistory that has all been forgotten or covered up, it makes a lot of sense that you would consider the Bunpos to be some kind of vestige of this, you know, 40,000, this, this Aryan history from 40,000 years ago. Uh, I had a question. I yeah, go ahead, Adam. Uh, yeah, related to their religion, I've always been slightly confused by Tibet's um, relationship with Buddhism, which I've always associated with peacefulness and nonviolence. And I was I was struggling to understand what their response would be to something like the Chinese invasion around 1950, where these atheistic communists are showing up with. Uh, assault rifles and somewhat relatively speaking modern uh, weaponry uh, much more so than what I would imagine the Tibetan monks were wielding. Uh, I'm imagining they're, they're carrying wooden staffs and maybe some uh, martial arts knowledge but I don't know how they reconcile the nonviolence with the, the imminent threat of the Chinese coming in. So yeah, there, are, uh, there are many who would uh, disagree with this Adam as far as uh, both the samurai and the slave-holding Buddhists in mainland China, but please uh, do go me. on. Not just the not just the slave-holding Buddhists in, in China. I mean, the the Tibetan monasteries themselves again were, were are really best thought of as kingdoms unto themselves, and sometimes they would you know typically they, they would be you know supported by a local king type figure, but uh, you know they had their own security forces, and they had the the the, 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 the the myth of Shangri-La, to put it in kind of blunt terms, is is real, but it, it's it's really just a myth. And and you know the, there's a complicated relationship not just with 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 Buddhism, but all Dharmic religions. You know the 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 Vedas themselves are kind of um, you know in the, in the Vedas, it, you know you have to kill cows. That's not very widely known. Most Hindus would 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 not you know that even I've I've seen uh, you know ethnic Indian students who identify as as Hindus who you know learn this fact in a class on Hinduism and are they just can't process what that would even mean but it's it's a, it's a fact that you know you have to ritually um sacrifice cows in in the Vedas that's one of the things that's stipulated you have to do and uh but it, but the texts themselves are ambivalent about it much more so in Buddhism which is explicitly nonviolent in a way that you know the the what you could call Hinduism isn't um 
But, you know, all the way going back to the earliest Mahayana literature, there's there's a very famous story, and particularly famous, I think, in Tibetan Buddhism, about a, um, a, a you know, one. I think it's actually from the Jataka tales, which is like all Buddhists sort of recognize, and it's the previous lives of the Buddha before he became our Buddha, you know, before he became the Buddha. And uh, he was a captain on a ship. Um, his, his name in the story is given as Captain Compassion, which whatever. But the the story is that, it was a ship with like, you know, let's say several hundred people on it. And he got, somehow he learned of a plan. There was a thief um, and a murderer on board who planned to kill everyone and take all their stuff. Like he was going to sink the ship and to, I don't know exactly, I don't remember all the details, but let's say he was going to, you know, do a bad thing and murder all these people and take all their stuff. So, you know, with tears in his eyes, Captain Compassion sort of, out of forms this com- extremely compassionate resolve. He says, well, you know, it's bad to kill, but if I allow this person to go through with their plans, then he is going to accumulate extreme, just incredible amounts of extremely bad karma. So, yes, killing is bad, and yes, I'm going to experience the um, negative results of that, and I'm going to be have to go to hell for a while. But I, you know, g- gladly and dutifully take up that you know burden of having to go to hell for a while for murder in order to prevent this greater disaster. Um, and then there's different versions of like if that was a kind of purely um, altruistic thing and he didn't have to go to hell at all. I heard a, a version of the story once where he like after he died, he kind of he went down to hell, but he just kind of bounced off of it and immediately bounced back <laughs> into the human realm. Um, you know, there's but the point is, you know, the, the intention matters is the main thing. Buddhism, I mean, the Buddhist ethics is its own thing. But the but the bottom line is, you know, intention matters. Motivation matters. And there is no blanket prohibition on violence. I've heard the. I think generally. So there, there's this whole uh, tanky counter tanky um, field of literature that I find is just fascinating uh, around the time of uh, the Chinese invasion. Um, so maybe we're skipping a little bit ahead, but I think it, it actually has very little to do with the invasion itself. Um, but before the Sino-Soviet split, when I guess the official party line of all of the uh, the many, many uh, communist agents of various kinds writing in English uh, for the English-speaking world uh, was that uh, pre-invasion Tibet was effectively this uh, you know, kind of feudal slave-holding uh, uh, theocracy almost, um, that, uh, you know, the poor peasants, uh, were, uh, taken from their homes to, uh, serve these, uh, aristocratic, uh, llamas and, uh, you know, were mutilated, um, because of course you're not supposed to, uh, you're not supposed to murder them because of their heathen, uh, religion. But now the, uh, the new God of scientific, uh, atheistic, uh, communism is on the scene and we've liberated all the peasants and, uh, now Tibet is one big happy family. And obviously, like that—that's like a car- that's their <laughs> right. caricature. But the question There's, is, and again, with the, with the sorry, finish your question. I'm, I, well, I, I mean, the, the question is to what extent, like, it's a mountain kingdom in, in nineteen, not even kingdom. Like, it's peasant mountain people pre nineteen fifty, pre electricity, pre sanitation. Things are going to suck a lot. Um, yeah. So the question is like. How much did it kind of uniquely suck versus what you would expect? Um, what was the sort of uh, experience, I guess, of your average peasant relating to uh, their uh, 
putative rulers as opposed to peasants anywhere relating to their putative rulers. What was that? What what was your sort of impression of that historical time period? Well, I'm not a I'm not a historian, so I I wish I could answer in more detail. But um, I I think it's important, you know, as with the Chinese claim to sovereignty, they're not just making stuff up. It is true that, you know, as I emphasized before, it was a feudal society. It was a it was a you know, it's a difficult place to live. Not a whole lot grows depending on where you are. Um, And, you know, there was a there was a large contingent of nomads. Um, You know, uh, it it, it's it's uh, it was not an easy place to live. And to the extent that you had civilization and education and thing, you know, things that we would associate with um, a higher quality of life, that came from the Buddhist tradition, from the Buddhist, it was centered in the Buddhist monasteries. You know, again, like Lhasa, the capital itself, is a little bit different, but even Lhasa was, was you know, very much, uh, there was, a, you know, many monasteries all, all over the place, and most towns, you know, the larger urban, what would pass for urban centers would have, you know, a large monastery nearby and practically nowhere would you not have some kind of monastery within, um, a few hours walk. So I, I typically somewhere around 25% is what I, what I think is the consensus of the, of the popular, of the male population would be monks at, at any given time. Um, most of them for life. Um, it's, and that was a way for people to advance. Much, I mean, the, the, the way you have to look at it is in many ways similar to medieval Europe. So you ask, you know, you can ask the same question about, you know, what is a European peasant's life like circa the year 1100? Um, you're gonna, and, and what is their relation to the aristocracy, to the local political power, king, whatever, you know, chief, you know, prince or whatever, you know, duke? Um, I, I, think, I think it's, it's very much comparable to that. So, I mean, that almost well, gets us. Go ahead, Nick. Oh, go ahead, Nick. Yeah, well, to the 20th century. Let's um, let's get into some of the events of the 20th century. Prior to that, uh, when the British expedition or invasion, depending on how you read it, I mean, they didn't end up killing their people, but uh, around the time the British expedition went, I don't believe that there were any Westerners currently alive who had been to the Tibetan plateau. Not yeah, to say that they was, had not in the past. You know, right. Uh, yeah. No, the, the, you mean the young husband expedition in 1904? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So there was a, there was the, the British in the kind of late phases of the great game in the immediate lead up to the first world war, um, were, they sent an expedition, um, to try to basically think of it as analogous to the Americans sending Commodore Perry to Japan, kind of similar motivation and, and uh, similar outcome, except for I don't think did did Perry Perry didn't actually like shell Tokyo no. Harbor. Did no, he, he yeah. showed up and they eventually just let him uh, talk right. to the emperor because they were so um, intimidated. So, yeah, the, the Tibetans are are um, you know again part of the thing going on with the origin story part of the reason why i mention it with the with the rock ogress and the monkey is is the tibetans themselves kind of understand themselves to be like at best half civilized you know they're 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 rough and rowdy particularly the kampas in the east and this is you know again a kind of this regional thing is important but um the point being that you know they they just weren't going to take 
this kind of thing going down lightly. And yeah, so when Young Husband shows up with a couple dozen British troops and tries to force his way into Lhasa, um, you know, the Tibetans don't want to let him and uh, they, I, I, they get massacred. I mean, I don't know. I don't remember the exact casualty figures, but I, I believe it was like in the dozens or maybe up around 100 um, Tibetans die. And then, yeah, it's just not a nice situation. I think it was more. I think it was like six or seven hundred. Six or seven hundred. Yeah, yeah, could be. Who knows? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't. I'm sure. I don't know. But yes. Um, but yeah, that was that was the uh, the first attempt, and and it it succeeded. I mean, that a lot of the kind of later maneuvering. Um, the the other, of course, big thing, big picture thing that that needs to be understood is is of course at that time. India itself was part of the British Empire, right? It was the British Raj. So, um, and and there was this kind of, um, you know, Tibet occupied this this liminal zone because you know China never formally it, it was it was you know carved into the these spheres of influence by the great Western powers, but it was never formally incorporated into the political structure the way that India was or, or, you know, big chunks of, you know, like Indochina with the French empire and so on. Um, Tibet, I, I, it's unclear to me exactly what their motivations were or what the intention was, but, um, they certainly wanted, you know, access to trade rather than just to like put, leave their stamp there and say, you know, no, you're going to do business with us now. Um, but it, it was part of that same process. And, and so when the, uh, it, when when the European War ended, and at that you know in the lead up to uh, Indian independence in, in 1947, the, much of the initial diplomatic jockeying and and so for example when I, I said before the 13th Dalai Lama declared himself declared Tibet to be an autonomous nation, it was to the British in the context of the British trying to negotiate with the Chinese about you know trade essentially, and and that. It was part of that though that diplomatic process with you know the, the the British on behalf of the Indians negotiating with the Chinese on behalf of the Tibetans, um, and and the and and really a, a big part of this story with the fight for Tibetan, Tibetan independence and the American involvement concerns these very delicate um, the, the 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 interrelated status of the the British Empire, India, and then later the Americans kind of muscling in on that territory. Well, let's talk about the Chinese invasion that took place in 1950. Why did it take place? What were the circumstances around this? Why did this occur when it occurred? Well, I, basically, Mao had final by that point, he had consolidated power to the point where it was possible. It, it's important to understand that um, both the nationalists and the communists, in fact, to this day, claim sovereignty over, to, over Tibet. Um, this was a kind of delicate issue for it, it wasn't dispositive by any means. It wasn't the the main factor, which was why nobody ever extended um, uh, recognition, diplomatic recognition to the Tibetan government in exile. Um, but it was definitely part of the story um, for the Americans in particular that, you know, through the whole period where the Tibetans recognized the, the Kuomintang as the legitimate government in China and, and later, you know, the, the Republic of China and Taiwan as, you know, an independent, like, uh, the, as the authority, um, it was it, at, at no point did either the, nat, like, either the nationalists or the communists ever surrender what they considered, they considered Tibet to be part of the Chinese empire. Now is and this so, is this because what they wanted to do was 
construct the celestial throne or Mount Simru and to flood the cosmos I think it was, with cheaply well, manufactured consumer goods? <laughs> uh, I, I think it, initially it was more about um, just just uh, this. Yeah, I mean, you could talk about the celestial throne in that sense. Just a national pride, essentially. Like we, this thing, this land is a part of our thing. And it's not going to go be its own thing. It's it's going to be it's going to continue to be a part of our thing because it's true that on paper, um, it had been and, and and Tibetan affairs had been conducted. There was always representatives of the Chinese court, you know, through the entirety of the Qing dynasty, basically from 1600 through through 1900 and 1912. Um, you know, that, that nominally had some amount of of authority, you know, de facto, they had been independent. They were, you know, varying degrees of independent throughout that. But by the rules of the kind of, you know, international diplomacy game, the Chinese had a point. Um, I, I nowadays, also just want to point please. out real quick that the Korean War kicked off in June 1950, and the Chinese invaded yes. Tibet in October 1950. So one could argue that they saw an opportunity there because of the distraction posed by the Korean War. Definitely. What, um, what were the wait? Sorry, I just want to make general, one, say one, oh, sure, one last please. one last thing. Uh, nowadays, the motivation is diff is is somewhat different. I, I want to say like it, there is definitely this this issue of territorial integrity, which is a perpetual concern for empires generally and and the Chinese Empire in particular. But uh, really, the the main issue I think is is about water. Um, the some I think it's either five or six of the seven biggest sources of water water for Asia, for the region, are on the Tibetan plateau. So controlling Tibet means controlling the water source. And and that's what the that's the main security. Yeah, there's precious metals and so on, but that is the main security interest of the Chinese Communist Party today. Uh, please continue. What was your what was your question? Oh, well, I, I was just going to ask about uh, previous trade arrangements. To, yeah, was I'm, there I'm, were there goods coming into the plateau? Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, I'm not. An, I'm not an economic. Nearly I'm not 15, an economist. 14,000, Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. A, I'm neither an economist nor a historian. But um, yeah, that that was basically part of the. It was part of the parts of the Silk Road ran through Tibet, um, and uh, yeah, you'd get you know silk coming from the east and spices coming from various places, and yeah, there was definitely a fair amount of trade. Um, but it's all, I mean, that was mostly centered in, in, in southern, dipping into uh, central Tibet. Uh, you also just have these extremely remote areas that are quite inhospitable and, you know, mostly just kind of nomadic pastoralists. Well, I think so the water the... thing is an interesting one. I mean, I, I, I recall this vaguely, but the, the, the watershed of the biggest rivers in China I think do eventually start up in the Himalayas. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but no, I believe that's yeah. Yeah. And before that though, it's, it's, it's just desert. And so they must've been thinking, you know, very, uh, very long term about sort of where their ultimate supply of water is. And it, it makes sense. I mean, China well, has traditionally is, struggled is, with agriculture because of that. Um, go ahead. Yes. And, and the other, the other thing is it's historically a buffer region. I mean, you can think, you know, imagine if, if like Poland had the world's highest mountains on its like Western border with Germany, 
right? Because it otherwise the you know okay, there's a lot of differences, but you're kind of sandwiched between these two great you know Germany and and Russia, right? And you're kind of like both of those giant powerful empires or polities consider you an important buffer between themselves. Um, and that's kind of the position of Tibet with respect to, to China and India to this day. I mean, I think I actually saw something just yesterday that like, uh, you know, there's, there's some kind of scuffle developing on the, on the border between India and China, which is still, they're still in a, in a, um, legal state of war. There, there is no, um, I don't even think there's a ceasefire, um, and, and between China and India and, and they, they do not agree on their border. Well, I just want to point out that uh, the Salween, the Mekong, the Yangtze, the Yellow River, um, and multiple other important water systems that not only flow through China, but flow through Myanmar, flow through Cambodia, uh, flow into India, are all sourced directly from the Tibetan Plateau. Thank so the you. wider yes. strategy is not just control, you know, Chinese, the Chinese trying to maintain control over their own water supply. The wider strategy is maintaining water supply for the Indian subcontinent and Southeast Asia. That's exactly right. And it's actually, oh, sorry, go on. Well, if you're, if you're able, especially to control the Mekong Delta, um, you're controlling the food supply for Burma or Myanmar, uh, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand, uh, to a wider extent, maybe even Bangladesh. And you're certainly controlling the food supply of Asia as a whole because much of Asia sources rice, sources fish, sources all kinds of foods from these regions. So you're, you know, the Chinese basically are in control for the most part of a, a trillion dollar economic engine that exists in Tibet. The, the Tibetans don't really have anything to do with, um, but that's, you know, almost entirely the reason why that control is maintained and probably why the, the, uh, the, the Chinese are now set on just replacing the Tibetans after 60, 70 odd years of conflict. It seems like replacement is a better strategy they, than they built a, I don't remember if it's high speed, but they built a very expensive railroad system to go all the way up to uh, Tibet yeah. for really no other justification other than political. Cause economically, I mean, what are you going to do? Like, you know, have monks touristing in Shanghai. I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense. So I no, think it's, it, it, it's it, to it's solidify. No, there's an explicit policy or I don't know, yeah. ex explicit is the wrong word, but, but, uh, it's certainly implicit and it's certainly real, um, policy of ethnic replacement. It, it, it is basically a slow motion genocide. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, uh, real, well, real quick though. You can, three you can see, you can see that at play in Xinjiang, which is now the, the, uh, the preferred, the preferred topic du jour of sort of the uh, the human rights movement around the world. No one cares about Tibet anymore. Um, but you know, for whatever reason, the uh, the helpless Muslims in Xinjiang are the uh, are the new are the new preferred victim class. Um, but you don't see this in places like Inner Mongolia or some of the old uh, Manchu or Tungusic regions in northern China, or even the Chinese Hui. You know, traditional Han Muslims—they seem to get on just fine, but the reality is that they appear to be more conciliatory towards the Chinese regime rather than, uh, you know, Uyghurs and Tibetans who have a more uh, uh, difficult history and certainly are not interested in cooperation. So then, therefore, they're yeah, it's, they're replaced. It, it's almost like. Uh, cause celeb 
uh, ethnic liberation movements for obscure remote regions of the world is the province of the CIA. Yeah. One of the things that I thought really... Which is a bit of uh, foreshadowing for what we will be discussing uh, in a moment here, but I also wanted to add, because I might forget it, uh, to what Hans was saying. I always found funny, I'm sure you guys remember I don't know when it was a few past few years uh, where the Dalai Lama made comments regarding the ethnic replacement program going on in Europe and the same people who, you know, probably at one point or another had a t free Tibet bumper sticker on their car were decrying him as a crypto fascist. Yeah, I remember that very clearly, Nick. Uh, one of the things well, that I picked up uh, interestingly from uh, Greg Cochran's blog was you know, this campaign of ethnic replacement is real, but there's a severe limit there in that uh, just because of the actual altitude, uh, the the Tibetans actually, like actual Tibetans, not, you know, I'm from Tibet, man, uh, but people who have lived there for a certain number of millennia, they actually have a markedly better ability to live at high altitudes than oh yeah uh, they have the, the superior ability yes. to, to process yes. oxygen um, not, not, and, and not only that there, there was so when the um when they eventually started conducting operations uh the the tibetans w uh were having trouble they were getting training by the cia they were having trouble on the eastern seaboard just because of the altitude and they found, I mean, I, I guess it was also better, you know, uh, more like Tibet, but they had to relocate the operation to Colorado to, to in, in part because of the altitude. So they had trouble with a more oxygen-rich environment because typically yeah. athletes will train at high altitude because it acclimates them to low oxygen, but then they can compete quite well at low altitude. I'm that's surprised. What the, that's what the guy who wrote the, I mean, I don't know how true that is, but that's what the... Um, John Kenneth Knauts, the guy who wrote the operational history of this. Uh, yeah, I'm sure the, he knows. I, I'm just wondering, yeah. that, you know, biologically what's happening there. I mean, maybe it was too yeah. hot or something. I don't know. But uh, maybe, maybe it's too much oxygen. I'm just throwing that out there. I mean, if you can, if you're processing oxygen, uh, yeah, oxygen is toxic. I mean, yeah. if you if you go above the concentration of oxygen that your body is expecting, uh, your brain will shut down. It's it's not good. And they, there's a reason why they have, for example, like in the in Everest expeditions, uh, they would have the Sherpas be going up first, you know, to to set the lines. So DK, uh, one thing I did want to ask, maybe before we get into the to the CIA um, business and the intelligence services, you know, what do uh, Buddhists around the world? Uh, you know, tied or not to uh, Tibet, feel about the kind of ethnic replacement agenda in Tibet? Do they see it as a wider Buddhist struggle? I mean, I know that there is a a similar struggle going on currently in Myanmar. There is a yeah. there's been a low grade civil war going on for about 15 years between uh, Rohingyas and various other uh, Bengali Muslims and. Uh, and the native uh, Buddhist uh, uh, tribes or, or Burmese, ethnics, yeah. ethnics of, uh, of yeah. the wider Myanmar. Uh, so is, there is was there apparently. Oh yeah. So the, there was apparently. I, I will have to 
pull it up, but the, basically there there was a uh, one of the dispatches from the uh, or sorry, it was I guess an interview with one of the um, people in control of the of the CIA who were you know, running the operation um, said that they had basically hoped that the Dalai Lama would would fill the role of like a, a pope of all the world Buddhists in the world <laughs> and um, uh, I didn't I, you know part of the reason why I mentioned all those different traditions was to emphasize that the Dalai Lama is not even the pope of Tibetan Buddhism specifically um, you know if you're a Nyingma or a Sakya or a Kagyu uh, you know you're gonna have a, a respect of course for the Dalai Lama you'll probably see him as what the kind of traditional claim is that he is an incarnation of the cosmic Buddha of compassion of Alukiteshvara or, or Chenrezig in Tibetan. But, you know, in terms of actually looking to him as a kind of authority figure, um, I mean, nowadays in exile, it's a little bit different, of course. But but even so, you know, it, it's not that you're going, it's not like the Dalai Lama is the Pope of all the Tibetan Buddha. I mean, the, the different schools and traditions and monasteries all have their own kind of different authority structures. It's, it's much more decentralized than that. And, and so in, in that sense, I don't think, um, I don't think that, that it's, uh, it works quite, quite that way. At the same time, it's definitely true that, um, the, there is a great, I think a, a, a recognition, a growing recognition among, Mo, you know, the, the, the most Asian Buddhists probably wouldn't think about this stuff hardly at all. But among the ones that do that, uh, you know, global homo and Western liberal democracy are very bad <laughs> for them and, and, and just bad generally. And uh, so there was an interesting development. Um, I guess I could share this, this anecdote. There's a, there's a famous, um, you know, kind of well-known Tibetan teacher, Lama named uh, Zongsar Kense Rinpoche. And he got in a lot of trouble, um, particularly, you know, among Western Buddhists. But, but uh, you know, because he had a he had a Facebook account, and uh, he basically was using it. He, he he's kind of like he likes you know lamas like to kind of push your buttons. It's sort of one of the th main things that they do. But um, he was basically saying uh, in the aftermath of Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, this uh, Burmese kind of non you know political. Uh, sorry, not non-political. She was a, a non-violent uh, leader of the of, of the of the political movement to end the military the, junta. The economists never shut up about her, so I'm I'm suspecting a deep state. Uh, probably our listeners know, but yeah. So Aung San Suu Kyi uh, basically came out in support of Uwira, of Uwiratu, this uh, this uh, what what do they call him the 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 monk of hate or something? I don't remember. You know, he, there's a great photo of him like reading this this terrible the bald guy who looks like a yeah. twelve year old. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he looks like he's 12, but yes, yeah, he's that guy. Um, but he, uh, he, he uh, you know, yeah, wait, wait, hold on. Hans, be, be careful. I, I, Adam once informed me that it's actually uh, the Tibetan plateau is among the highest numbers of listenership to this program. So please, please be respectful. <laughs> uh, well, he's, he's Burmese, but, but yeah, so, so this, uh, this monk is the one who's like really leading the charge against the Rohingya in a lot of ways. And Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, Burmese nationalist, and, and she won the Nobel Peace Prize for her, her work on nonviolently trying to end this military regime, um, supported him, came out in support of him, and had her Peace Prize, her Nobel Peace Prize, revoked. And Dongsar Kense Rinpoche, a Tibetan Buddhist, who's, you know, he's not Burmese, he's not, you know, it's actually a completely different branch of Buddhism, is about as far apart theologically, as, as, as Buddhists can get from each other. Um, Dongsar Kense Rinpoche basically came out and said, you know, you Westerners like to talk a big game 
about democracy and human rights, but you know, like uh, this, that's all kind of bullshit. And you know, Aung San Suu Kyi is right. And this did not play well at all, uh, at all among, you know, the kind of West woke Western Buddhist crowd. And I mean, I was dying laughing. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it caused a minor stir. And so there is, I think, a growing recognition. I mean, it, it's not something that um, gets talked about much and it's sort of whispered. And, you know, I, I, you know I'm kind of, I guess, I don't know, I, the word that came to mind is prominent. I don't know how true that is. I'm, I'm a racist podcaster and an E, you know, Z list, whatever. But uh, I, I do see part of my role as trying to make it, you know, under – there is a there is a, a possibility for Western Buddhists or Westerners who are interested in Buddhism to understand that, you know, Buddhism isn't this kind of airy fairy thing. You don't need to be one of these hippie types or 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 you know you know have your politics be indistinguishable from the Rachel Maddow crowd. Um, quite the opposite, in fact, that you know, historically grounded, you know, uh, uh, philosophically sound Buddhism that would be recognizable to Buddhists throughout history, um, you know, is is. Uh, is fundamentally what we would, you could it has to be right. You know, if you're going to say, is it a right wing or left wing thing? It's a right wing thing, and uh, that is is def- that kind of consciousness. I think is is definitely on the rise. Um, Hans, I don't know if that answers your question, but but well, it, yeah. it does. I mean, and you know, I something I've been interested in before, and um, uh, is really the subject of compatriotism amongst various Buddhist. Asian states, you know, Mongolia in particular is very much a, I don't think people realize Mongolia is effectively a Buddhist run state to this day. Well, what's uh, interesting was they were communist for yeah. decades. So I, I don't know but how that there, happened. There was a period, I'll never forget this analogy. There was a period long after the fall of the Golden Horde and, and basically the end of the Mongolian Empire uh, when the Mongolians sort of retreated inwards and they adopted Buddhism heavily. One in four maybe even close to one in three men in Mongol men were Buddhist monks or something to that effect. There was this. Yeah, that's, as I said, that's Buddhism. pretty, that's pretty typical for that, re, you know, for Tibet and the adjacent Buddhist, you know, areas generally. And, and I mean, but you, again, compare it to uh, medieval Christian Europe. I don't know if it was, it was quite that high, but a very large, basically, you know, your first child would receive the inheritance. Your second child would, would go into the, into the religious services. And then you'd have, you know, three, four five kids, but that's a good way to get, um, uh, yeah, approximately anywhere from a third to a fifth of your populate male population to be monastics. Right. Well, well, I think what I'm interested in mostly is just, if there is a growing sense or there has been a growing sense of compatriotism amongst Buddhists, I mean, I don't really know what Japanese Buddhists have in common with Burmese Buddhists or Tibetan Buddhists. They seem uh, somewhat uh, almost isolated from one another. I mean, in World War II, there were multiple attempts by the Japanese to contact Tibet. And so the the notion that they hadn't even really established contact, I think, was interesting that, uh, you know, Buddhism had sort of not maintained a uh, a network of polities or communication the way that Christianity or Islam had. No, that's like really, you know, oh, sorry, go on. I believe that there was a Japanese Zen monk who traveled to the to Tibet in uh, the 18th or 17th century. I'm not sure exactly when, but he served as some kind of uh, adjunct to yeah, I'm not familiar with that. That's certainly yeah, possible. What, what I'll say is, you know, one of the obviously there's, you know, important 
philosophical or theological differences, um, you know, varying degrees, I guess, of importance, different between Buddhism and Christianity. But I think certainly for myself and I think for a lot of people, one of the most common misconceptions or, or sort of things that it's initially hard to wrap your head around when it comes to Buddhism is is there is it's it's much more loosely organized and decentralized in Christianity. You never had anything close to the kind of hierarchical structure um, that you saw in Christianity, even from, you know, the early kind of the, the church fathers period on the contrary, like uh, in, in the, in the immediate aftermath after the, the Buddha passed into Parinirvana, they called a, a you know, a, a council of, you know, all of the, all of the monks and, and the consensus, they, they arrived at a certain kind of consensus. Um, and then they did it again, I think, you know, 30, 40 years later, and it was already starting to fray. And then by within less than a hundred years after the Buddha passed into Parinirvana, there was a major schism among Buddhists that persists to this day. And there were only further schisms from then on. And so, yeah, there is no like, again, it's not just that there is no Pope of all the Buddhists. There is no like, Buddhism is, a, a, the variation in Buddhism is, is, is there is a lot of philosophical variation and, and what you could call theological variation um, that can be very important. In a lot of ways, Buddhism is best thought of varying along regional lines. So, you know, Chinese Buddhism looks a certain way, Japanese Buddhism looks a certain way, Tibetan Buddhism looks a certain way, Burmese, Thai, Sri Lankan, and so on. And, you know, there is a, a often, not always, but often a certain amount of conformity. Um, I don't think, to my knowledge, there's no, I guess, well, uh, I think it was Sri Lanka is a good example of this. As as late as like the 14 or 1500s, Sri Lanka had, rep, you know, continuous Buddhist traditions from all of the major different branches. You had, you had tantric monastery, monasteries that were involved in tantric practices. You had... The, the Theravada tradition represented, you had non-tantric Mahayana represented. Um, and then for essentially reasons of political consolidation, um, Sri Lanka, you know, the 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 king at the time who was a, a, an adherent of the Theravada basically said, okay, well, you're all going to be Theravada now. And, and that was the end of, of tantric Buddhism in Sri Lanka. But, um, you know, that again, it, it, it's really like, you know, I was talking a little bit with Nick, you know, uh, before the show, Traditionally, like to understand Buddhist history, the way this works is like Buddhism moves into a kind of cultural, geopolitical, linguistic, ethnic region, right? And and the process by which a people and ethnos broadly construed um, are assimilated into Buddhism typically takes a few centuries. And in the Tibetan case, it took, uh, I guess, a little shorter than usual because there was, you know, there was a king of a Tibetan empire that said, okay, we're Buddhists now. And that model definitely happens. And it happened, in, you know, in Christian Europe as well. But um, as with Christian Europe, and, and, and definitely, as you can see in, in the case in, in, in other Buddhist societies, typically it's about a two or a 300 year process of a people or a region um absorbing the buddha the you know the dharma buddha dharma the buddhist tradition buddhism whatever um and and gradually kind of making it their own and in the west i'd say we're about a hundred or so years into that process and and yeah part of why i you know risk my neck even as an anon to to do what i do is because i i i think 
there are better and worse ways in which that can happen. There are more authentic and less authentic ways in which that can happen. And, and I would like things to be as good and as authentic as possible. Well, as a, as a Buddhist, uh, what do you, what do you seek? If this is even a way to put a question to you, to a Buddhist, but what, what are your political goals and what do you want for Buddhists? Uh, what do you want for America? Uh, how do you relate those two things? Cause a lot of people have a difficulty meshing nationalism and Christianity, for example. And I'm wondering if there's a similar conflict between the nationalisms and Buddhist, uh, uh regionalisms that have seemed seemingly developed. Well, I, I mean, I think the comp to the, uh, to the extent there's a conflict between Christianity and nationalism. I think that's a very strange phenomenon. That's really an artifact of, um, the so-called enlightenment and classical liberalism and so on. And, 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 you know, emphasizing the universalist aspects of Christianity to the exclusion of, um, just basic good governance or what would have been understood as basic good governance. And, 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 um, because the Asian didn't experience anything really analogous to what, what historians in the West call the enlightenment, um, you didn't really, those things never really got divorced. So yes, is is Buddhism universalist in its outlook? Absolutely. Um, and you know, as a as a particularly a Mahayana Buddha, that's the, the big split is between the the what you could call the Theravada and the Mahayana. Um, from a Mahayana perspective, you know, your motivation is you want the enlightenment. You want all sentient beings to attain full to become Buddhas, um, full stop. And sort of what like ethics are utilitarian conceived on a scale where the highest utility function is uh, is becoming fully awakened, a complete and perfect Buddha. And that is for all sentient beings throughout time and space, you know, not just not, not even just humans um, and, and not even just beings in our world, in our universe. Um, but, you know, we live we live in a society and and, uh, and so these these kind of areas like, yes, that that ideally is the um, is the motivation. But it's always been understood. I mean, again, you got to look at this in terms of, um, you know, Buddhism is 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 an is a dharmic religion. It comes out of a, a kind of our Indo-Aryan tradition of kingship that requires a certain amount of violence. And it's always going to have an ambivalent relationship with that violence. And there's always an understanding that. You know, in order for the, the basic line of thinking goes like this, and I haven't really seen this put this explicitly anywhere, but, you know, this is me talking to you guys and whoever's listening. Um, basically, the idea is this. In order to in order to, like, reach this goal of all sentient being, you know, we want to we want to maximally facilitate this kind of universalist goal. But in order to do that, you need certain material conditions to be met. We need a healthy, well-fed happy, morally virtuous population. And so the question of governance is really a question of what facilitates those goals. You know, I think famously people are, or, or many people are aware, you know, Bhutan, which is a, you know, basically a Tibetan Buddhist kingdoms, the Bhutanese are essentially ethnic Tibetans. Um, you know, they, they take surveys on happiness and they're very careful in their introduction of technology. They don't really allow unfettered internet access. They don't really, you know, they're, they're very, you know, careful about things like, uh, cell phones, um, precisely because the the king the, the king of Bhutan understands, you know, he is responsible for the happiness and and well being and essentially really also the spiritual development of his people. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, if I mean, in again, again, a way that's very analogous to Christianity, um, the, democracy is kind of, like not only is it empirically just a failure um, at a theoretical level, you everything is oriented around the idea of a a Dharma king, right? And uh, not to say that I'm suggesting myself for such a role, far from it. Um, but, but yeah, this idea of like, you know, the, the Dharmic kingship or the kingship of the Dharma, this idea of a, of a, of a, that, that is really, you know, what the strains of Buddhism, Buddhism doesn't really have a worked out political theory. And as far as I'm aware, but, um, to the extent that it, that it's sort of implied or, or, you know, taken for granted, those strains converge on the idea of, a of a of a dharmic of a king that 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 is virtuous and that facilitates you know virtue and happiness for his subjects and so as far as you know what i want for the united states i mean this is all kind of airy fairy and pipe dream and who knows you know i would say at a personal level i have nothing but respect for christianity i think you know christianity is historically important for the european peoples and it's difficult for me to conceive of Europe, the European nations surviving absent their Christian heritage. I think for for complicated reasons that maybe don't matter, you know, the situation is is different in the United States. And I, I, I think that, an, you know, some kind of American Dharmic kingdom is actually a possibility, um, maybe even a good thing, but obviously very far off. Well, it is my view that the position of the greatest compassion would be that only total Aryan victory could potentially lead to an easing of the suffering of the world. Yeah, I mean that's the ser- I mean that's the thing is when you I mean I you know, I, I know you're speaking tongue in cheek, but like no, I'm actually not. <laughs> no, I, I am I I am not. Well, I, I, what would I be the question is that. you know what would be better would would Chinese domination global hegemony be better? I mean I I think that you know that's kind of yeah, certainly from my perspective obviously not. Um, you know, anarchy. Do we want? Do we want a world united under the yoke of Zion? Uh, no, thank you. So, it, it's a, it's, it's a, yeah. There's a real question there. And and as far as you know, I mean, if we're talking this kind of airy fairy pie in the sky type stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there, you have to ask what is best for people. Clearly, again, I mean, from my perspective, I don't know how how you all feel about it, but. Um, you know, democracy is empirically a failure. This was the thing. This is what, you know, to, to bring it back to Tibet, you know, there, there were some kind of fleeting attempts at, at democratic reforms um, in the lead up to the Chinese invasion and, and after. And these all basically just failed immediately. And, and you know, some people will, will try to blame the entrenched arist- aristocracy and their efforts. And there, of course, there's some truth to that. And, you know, aristocrats don't like it when you try to take their power. But I think the deeper truth, and to get back to this issue of, of, of you know, how do the peasants feel, you know, I, I've met peasants in Asia that, you know, I, I, I was um, I was in Thailand once and and talking with just some dirt farmer who who was just extremely proud of the fact that he had a king and that his king was a Dharmic king who was a virtuous man. Everybody in Thailand loves the king. Even the, the the poorest, you know, beggar loves the king. So, you know, th- like uh, th- this idea that you know the people need to advocate for themselves within a parliamentary system is just bullshit. I know, but I, I just have a hard time believing that anyone really, really believes that. Anymore. Do you think that there's something in innate in the Asian psyche that 
has more deference towards the authority figure than the European psyche does. I, I bring this up because I think back on my somewhat, uh, somewhat limited knowledge of the monarchies of Europe and even going back to the empire, you know, of, of Rome and, and thinking that, sure, there were some, some especially impressive and virtuous figures in that long span of time, but I can also name quite a few Caligulas and Neros that were nut jobs. <laughs> and well, you have, a, I'm sure you, you have good and bad kings everywhere. I, I do think there is a, a greater degree of social deference. I, I, I definitely would, would say that, you know, particularly in the contemporary, um, in, our, in, in, you know, European civilization as it currently exists, that that's true, but probably also historically, um, I, again, I'm not a historian or anything like that, but but I, I do think that um, you know for for complicated reasons, uh, you, you do see a greater willingness to defer to that kind of authority in general, and and that the the balance of power um, in Europe, you know, the, the 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 monarchy was only ever one piece on the board. You you had you know their the, uh, landed aristocracy was another the clergy was another uh, eventually the merchants you do see a kind of I mean, obviously you know the kind of the priest uh, warrior and and merchant breakdown of society is is an old Aryan thing and and um, and and you definitely see that in India but yeah I I do think that that um, for whatever reason or reasons that that there is maybe more of a willingness to but then you see like local power i, I think you know maybe it would in, in in a western context it would look more localized i don't know i wouldn't adam to give my answer to that too i wouldn't treat the asiatic what you would maybe consider as the asiatic mind uh and buddhism synonymous i mean evola for example saw in buddhist tradition uh, remnants of uh, and parallels to uh, other aryan disciplines from the past Yeah, for sure. I, I just wonder, um, how do you measure the the virtue of good governance? I, I guess that's really what I'm curious about. And I have a lot of sympathy for skepticism of democracy, at least in my own life experience. I've just noticed that uh, the kind of Churchillism is very true, that if you ever want to doubt the efficacy of democracy just talk to your average voter um it's it's astonishing how dumb and misinformed and manipulated frankly the american electorate is and it, it leads me to believe that it's really just a charade to give people the illusion that they have power to frankly just uh, subdue them um so it's kind of a, a false uh false thing to begin with but in theory the notion of having a participatory governance uh, if the individuals involved are virtuous members, doesn't strike me as a bad model, but there does seem to be a lack of accountability, uh, frankly, at the electorate level. Like you can be an idiot and vote and make really bad decisions, and there's no there's no consequence to that. So, well, it's also important to keep it. I mean, you know, while we're doing this thing, like you know, universal suffrage is is the real heresy here, right? I mean, it, it would you know, yeah, it, I agree. in Athens, it, I agree. in Athens, in the idea yeah. that you would just let some crackhead off the street be bussed into a polling station is just like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Um, and even into the you know, certainly in the in the 19th and into the 20th century, that idea would have you know, I guess it became more popular over time, but. Um, no one would have um, thought the idea of, you know, if you if you have a pulse that you can vote, 
you know, that that is a kind of uniquely contemporary perversion of you know whatever good impulse or or desire for popular accountability lies there. W- what I would say though is you know remember what I said about um, you know in, in Tibet you had this king who was at odds with what by that time had, was the majority you know religion and conception of what what a people should what people should be which was Buddhist and you know he was assassinated and and there is always at least you know it's not just the problem of succession or, or you can look at it as a double-edged sword. You know, people focus on the problem of succession and monarchy as, as a negative thing. And that's true. It can cause instability, but you know, if there's one guy who's misbehaving, it's a lot easier to remove him than it is, you know, 538 Congress critters. So let's use this as an opportunity to segue into uh, the organization that is probably the best known instrument of democracy the cia <laughs> yes and human uh, rights <laughs> yes how how did uh the cia become involved in the ethnic struggle of the tibetan people and what so were its I consequences think, thank you yeah so so uh this i think is really great and, and anyone listening to this if you haven't already listened to the episode you guys just did on on special forces which is highly recommended and and it was a great and thank you so much for doing it and and um i think that will really flesh out the perspective um, on all this stuff because it, it's it's really it's a very closely related thing. You know, the, the TLDR I guess on that episode for for our purposes here is is um, as initially conceived, U.S. Special Forces. The idea was that you would work with um, non-American populations in politically sensitive regions. Uh, indigenous forces that maybe were you know at varying levels of organization, um, maybe completely completely irregular, maybe just civilians um, may or may not be armed, um, maybe some kind of uh, militia unit, but to get them organized and effective, to use that as an instrument of American foreign policy. And that is basically the story here. So the, the as far as I can tell, um, the CIA, which, you know, which grew out of the uh, OSS, the Office of Strategic Services in the Second World War, um, especially in those early years in, in the late 1940s and, and, and in the 1950s, was largely staffed by veterans of the world, the European war. And, um, you know, serious people who, you know, whatever you want to say about the motivations and the kind of um, uh, just that whole situation, you know, these were, for the most part, serious patriotic people who, believed in what they were doing and and were not purely cynical the way that many politicians you know the people in in command were and 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 certainly what the the syndicate has become today um at the time it seemed as far as i can understand sort of reading between the lines that special forces capability of organizing indigenous um uh forces into, into something like an, a, a, cap, a, a real, the way they use is capability. And that's a word that keeps coming up in um, this book, uh, Orphans of the Cold War, that I recommend to people who are interested in this topic, um, to develop the capability, right? And and because there were no Green Berets in those days, there was, there was no, you know, unified special operations command, um, that, that, that capability, that capacity of the American government and American military to do that fell under the general organizational institutional umbrella of the CIA. And so it was CIA officers who, you know, they'd been receiving intelligence reports and they were very concerned about 
the um, the the essentially the victory of the Chinese Communist Party in the Chinese Civil War, and and so you know at, they they were very interested really from the beginning from from 1947 1948 b- before the proper Chinese invasion to they they saw the opportunity for. Tibet as, you know, a way in the same way that Tibet has I mentioned always been a buffer zone to use it as a buffer zone between the communist East and the rest of the world um, and to kind of, you know, play the game that way. So, yeah, I forgot. Does, does that initially answer your question? Yes. Well, as people are well aware, America is, of course, a dangerous bedfellow and uh, the support did not, of course, continue. Uh, can you talk about the cessation of American support for this? Yeah, to skip to the end, the great villain here is Henry Kissinger, um, who basically, I mean, there, the, 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 the secondary villain was, was John Kenneth Galbraith, who was the ambassador to India and just a kind of all-around shitty person. Um, but, the, the Harvard uh, yeah. economist, or is that a different Yes. One? No, what? yeah, the same guy. Yeah. Bizarre. Yeah, he, uh, he was, like, instrumental in, in basically at every... Um, he was briefly, he was, for some period of time, he was posted, um, I believe it was a- ambassador to India, um, but certainly in a diplomatic role in, in the, in the thing. And, and yeah, he was, he, he didn't like, he, what, let me see if I can, um, pull it up here. But, but he basically said that, you know, the, the, the he referred to the Tibetans as unhygienic, which, okay, fine. It's probably true. Certainly from his perspective, but it, it's just funny. <laughs> it's just funny because, you know, here's this like kind of great champion of uh, classical liberalism from a kind of left wing perspective, who is you know sort of one of the main architects of our current egalitarian system. Who's like basically his whole thing was yeah, fuck these dirty, smelly, you know, backwards Tibetans who Galbraith, suck. To- Galbraith is awesome because he's like <laughs> he's a, he's a carryover from like these FDR worshippers, but he's yes. still this hardcore wasp at heart. So he's like, all these damn ethnics in America ruined the New Deal. <laughs> right. That's basically his whole shtick. I mean, if you read the New Industrial State, you get this sense that like immigration ruined what could have been like utopian socialism. That's basically his whole idea is that corporations utilized new flows of people to undermine the, uh, the, the promised land wasp utopia that uh, that he and some of his some of fdr's disciple types had conceived for uh for the united states that's that's uh, just a, an aside like i've i've read a good amount of galbraith and I, I think that uh that's what i've always kind of understood from him is that he is just one of these hardcore uh fdr disciples that hates the uh, the ethnic problem in america yeah, and and so that's why I say he he was really instrumental in um, forming you know forming a consensus or or, or facilitate. But by that it has to be said by the 1960s, um, you know, because uh, so to sort of sort of break it down or, or go back a bit um, for a general overview. So so there was initially a period of kind of limited airdrops, um, just mainly of supplies um, into. The, into Tibet to, to help the Tibetan rebel. There was a period of, of revolt in Tibet in 1956-1957. And then uh, that was kind of marginally successful. But but after that kind of initial limited success, the, the there was it was increasingly basically there was a massive response from the Chinese, not entirely disanalogous to the situation in Korea. 
um, with the difference that there was no UN army on the other side. So the Tibetans were just crushed and uh, remained crushed. And there was an attempt to build a force capability of ethnic Tibetans in northern Nepal in the region called Mustang. Um, but uh, that basically never really went anywhere. And so you had the about uh, several thousand Tibetan guerrillas training in this extremely remote region of Nepal on the border with Tibet who never really managed to they were sort of waiting for a green light that kind of never came um and you know so by the late 60s it, it was very you know unpopular for not just because Galbraith was you know a shit heel but but for a lot of reasons and, and Galbraith kind of cultivated this thing of like why should we even care um but the death the death blow was was administered by Henry Kissinger, um, who <laughs> let me let me just read the the maybe the bit of the um, the uh, the Naus book. He says, although Tibet may not have been on the table in the Beijing talks, this is like the for the Nixon going to China. The era of official U.S. support for the Tibetan cause was over. U.S. policy had come full circle from the days in the early 50s when encouraging Tibetan resistance was part of an overall effort described by Dean Rusk as, quote, doing anything we could to get in the way of the Chinese communists. Two decades later, Kissinger would assure President Nixon that, quote, in plain terms, we have become tacit allies with Mao. I, I just want to pause and say that again. President Kissinger assured President Nixon that in plain terms, we have become tacit allies with Mao. The roles of the participants in the Cold War had so shifted that Kissinger reported to his chief, we are now in the extraordinary situation that with the exception of the United Kingdom, the People's Republic of China might well be closest to us in its global perceptions. And I think that, you know, people don't fully understand that, but but that is the situation that we have been in as the American empire since the 1970s is, you know, like, yeah, if you look at it, trade-wise or various otherwise, you know, now relations have, have maybe soured a little bit, but um, at least among the people, but I don't think the elite class has any intention of, of giving that up. On that note, before we maybe follow up with this or, or move on to something else, I did want to um, add one extra little bit, which is a, from a footnote to Naus's, um book, because the the thing, you know, Naus is, is an interesting guy. He seems he's, he's um, he, this is the uh, author he, the, of this book, and he, he, is a, uh, he was one of the CIA instructors for the Tibetan guerrilla teams that they were training in Colorado. Um, it seems like, I guess he was covering the kind of history and he wasn't teaching them, you know, how to use explosives or anything like that. He was, he was a, he was like a kind of social historical type guy, but uh, he, he sort of, you know, he tries to play it fair and he tried in his assessment and he, you know, he basically says, you know, this was sort of a doomed cause. The, the, you know, again, the TLDR is there were, there were two main reasons that the operation failed. Number one was that the Tibetans didn't really understand the concept of guerrilla warfare, and to the extent that they did, they they couldn't really act on it because the they tra they were you know they traveled with their families and they traveled with their pack animals pack animals, and so they couldn't really do the guerrilla bit. The other thing was was that uh, they couldn't in his words he said they couldn't follow Mao's tactic of merging with the local population, swimming with the fish, as Mao called it, when the fish live in a sparsely populated and easily patrolled aquarium. So there were operational factors as well. The, the thing that he mainly blames the American government for, that he really ha reserves his harshest criticism for, is the end of the monetary support for the Dalai Lama. 
Uh, and he, so in this footnote, he says, he says basically it was the United States. It was a pittance in terms of the American budget. And yet in, in the 1970s, it was ended. He writes, none of the CIA directors who served before, during, and after 1973, that is Richard Helms, James Schlesinger, or William Colby, could recall any meetings of the special group that made the decision to end the subsidy to the Dalai Lama. It was suggested that the action may have taken place at the verbal request of Dr. Kissinger. Yeah, that's about par for the course. I mean, it's, and to be fair, that was a good trade. Uh, at the time, you know, the, the Soviets and the Chinese had basically been in a small shooting war that didn't quite escalate to like an actual war, but you know, they they were shooting at each other in 68 and the, the imperative was to, uh, try to find some regional power that would allow the United States to counterbalance, neutralize, drive into Entente, however you'd like to characterize uh, it with the the USSR. So, I mean, it didn't make any sense at the time to be attempting to weaken the USSR's hostile neighbors. You want to strengthen the USSR's hostile neighbors. You don't want to be trying to uh, uh, go on some moral crusade uh, when you've got kind of a larger uh, strategic interest in making sure that, you know, you're able to actually have a security cooperation with China. So, yeah, I mean, sure, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't, I don't fault them for that. Yeah. And I can totally see Henry Kissinger being on use, you know, the, I can't do the German, the Bavarian accent, but yeah, screw those guys. Like, well, they're, they're not part of my grand chessboard. I, I look, I, I sympathize with any nationalist movement but they cannot be naive enough to think that a superpower order like three four more orders of magnitude greater in size actually cares about your plight you are a pawn on the chessboard yeah and 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 they were they need to realize that when somebody gives you money it is for a mutual exchange right and if that exchange stops Therefore, you cannot expect it to continue. I mean, it's it's really stupid, honestly. You know, anybody no, who I, expects I, you know free money or free anything. <laughs> no, no, and and to be to be clear, they did not have that expectation. It was it was uh, they understood uh, why they were being funded and trained, and and there was really no. It, it was actually Naus himself who identifies the the end of the subsidy to the Dalai Lama as a like a, a misstep on his, in his estimation uh, of the American government. He doesn't fault the Americans at all for ending their support otherwise. And, and neither do the Tibetans for the, you know, there's, there's not really any, you know, cause he, he interviews all the, um, the leader, the ones who survived, uh, you know, people who were in this, in this kind of guerrilla uh, operation. And basically, Basically, they're you know they're all very realistic and they understand you know what the deal is, what the shot is, so to speak, and they, and they uh, and 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 they're just grateful for however much limited assistance they did receive from the American government. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it well, sucks the, that the, like the you can't Indian fight like, the just the you know he he makes a good point too that the 
like having you think of you think of like Mountain Kingdom fighting guerrilla warfare, and you're like, hell yeah, that's literally what it's for. Switzerland, Scotland, Afghanistan, just graveyard of empires after graveyard of empires. But then, like, you kind of go from robust hill people into, wow, you literally might as well be on the moon. And it's like, unless you're, uh, I mean, can can you even get helicopters in there to drop off supplies? Like, you're, you can't even even insert people. Like, you can't even blow up a mountain pass because you've got to actually climb up the mountain in order to blow up. Well, and one of the issues that they faced was even if you could theoretically blow up a mountain pass because it was so remote and the just the amount of material you're talking about and the size of the forces involved you, like okay you blow up this mountain pass that's like 10 yaks worth of goods that is no longer going to go to that particular val- valley because you know that everything is like you just it, there's there is no big trade artery there there are no giant you know, there's no autobahn. There are no it's railways. Yeah, so it's like okay, you blew up this mountain pass. Great. Like one of the great um, successes of the operation uh, was was when there was a Chinese truck convoy that was successfully ambushed, and it was like eight trucks that were blown up, and and the dry, you know, and the Chinese force of like whatever a dozen guys or so were all killed. Um, okay. You know, they're like, that's great. You got, you killed a couple. It ended up being a kind of intelligence coup because there was some, uh, one of the people was, it was uh, on the trucks was a, uh, some kind of regional commander who had a bunch of intelligence on him. And, and, and so the CIA actually got a tangible intelligence benefit from having supported the operation. And, and that was used to justify the operation kind of moving forward for, for some period of time. But even, I mean, again, it's important to recall, like, I mean, or to you know, keep in mind that this, like, you're, you're talking about eight trucks, right? It's 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 not a depot. There is no, like, I mean, there are no depots, not in that sense. Um, everything involved is very small. Well, I, w- I would like to just uh, ask about the role of the Indian intelligence. Uh, Indians supported Tibet as far as early as like 1951. And I think it was Nehru, uh, the Prime Minister of India, longtime Prime Minister, who repeatedly insisted with China that they uh, that the Chinese respect traditional uh, British India relations with Tibet trade relations, to which the Chinese repeatedly said no. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, you know that the Indians and the Chinese fought a brief border skirmish in 1962. Um, And, you know, that was basically led to the establishment of several Indian paramilitary units inside of Nepal and inside of uh, inside of uh, Chinese Tibet, uh, utilizing, I think, Tibetan ethnics uh, for the purposes of like counter guerrilla operations and specifically in Nepal. And um, the uh, I think this even led to like a new uh, basically the formation of the Indian Foreign Intelligence Services RAW R-A-W, and uh, they basically ceased all of their activities a year and a half after American support for uh, for the Tibetans ended. Um, the Indians basically did the same, and then in 1976 had a uh, resuming of relations, diplomatic relations with China. You know, it's, it seems like the, the Tibetan conflict from a geopolitical standpoint was used mostly to extract 
concessions from China or used to just kind of point out to China that they had huge internal weaknesses and they should come to the table. And then as soon as they came to the table, all of those activities were halted. And the yeah. uh, Tibetan guerrilla armies were basically wiped out without anyone really caring. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the, the, the Nehru is a very interesting figure in this story um, as the first prime minister after independence. And eventually, I wouldn't quite say a champion of Tibetan autonomy. Um, no one ever had the balls to at the U. I mean, OK, we could say the U again, we can critique the U.N. and say it's fake and gay. And, and that's sure. I agree. But in terms of the rules of the game that we're all playing, um, you know, UN recognition means something uh, diplomatically, and and no one was ever willing to go on the record to to say that. And you know, the, there's actually quite a bit of maneuvering, quite a bit. You know, a lot of the book is concerned with um, all this kind of behind the scenes stuff, uh, as far as you know, who's willing to say what, and you know, eventually settling on this language of you know, we support the human rights of the Tibetan people, and they're you know, they've never always stopping short of this full Wilsonian, you know, a national self-determination type language to say nothing of, you know, diplomatic recognition of the Tibetan government in exile, which, which it had sought. Um, Nehru was initially quite hesitant and, and there was, he was really uncomfortable with the, the, um, having the Dalai Lama anywhere near him. He, they, he did not want him in India. He did not want to give the Chinese, um, reason to, uh, be aggressive towards India. They signed. I don't know all the history of this, but they they signed something called the five. What is it? The the punch a shield. The like the five principles of uh, like uh, peaceful coexistence, or something along those lines. And and this was an agreement between China and India that you know they would they would allow them to be good neighbors. Um, as it became clear in the 1950s that Mao didn't really intend to live up to his side of the bargain so far as India was concerned. Um, and then, yeah, of course, after that shooting war or brief, you know, sort of uh, shooting whatever period of uh, conflict, military conflict between China and India. Um, yes, the, the Indians became more and more aware of the role that Tibetan independence and the Tibetan um, problem could play in their uh, strategic, you know, battle or whatever with China. The, 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 the thing about the, the, um, it's an interesting sort of, uh, you know, I guess historical footnote or, or whatever with the, um, this capability, this guerrilla force. Yeah. So, so after, so the, so again, to sort of break down the, the, um, the phases of this operation, you had a few, you had basically the, the, uh, the first real support from the American government came in the form of this um, these airdrops uh, that were basically they had a train a team trained up in Saipan in the you know near Japan in the Pacific Rim uh, that were that were trained in in in, in American kind of you know the commando type operations they directed the the communications and supply drops um, for, for the, the American government to some limited amount of arms and ammunition to the Tibetans who were participating in the revolt against the Chinese government. Once that was crushed, um, everybody fled, or the one, you know, all the fighters fled across the border, and they set up operations in Mustang. It was those guys who basically, like, once the Indians became 
um, more involved in the process, they saw the opportunity for this kind of crack unit of mountain gorillas. Because, yeah, I mean, you're not using these guys to, in, you know, invade Tibet, but it's not like we don't have other uses to which they may be put. And so they were actually involved in the uh, operations in in East Bangladesh, in East Bangladesh, which is uh, sorry, East Pakistan, which is now known as Bangladesh, um, and and were very highly feared <laughs> by uh, opposing forces. And um, yeah, so it, but the, but as this as this situation wore on, and it became clear that there there was not that China was there to stay, and there was not going to be any um, mass scale revolt again. And, and certainly not any kind of military operations. Um, it, these guys in northern Nepal became a, a very, very difficult problem. Because, I mean, imagine you have a couple thousand guys who for the past 20 years have done nothing but like practice. You know, they, 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 the, the, to whatever extent they may have had families at one time that haven't seen them in 10, 15 plus years. You know, all they know is you wake up at the crack of dawn, you scale mountains, you blow shit up you repeat again the next day. <laughs> um, that's not something that you want in your borders if you can help it, unless it's like some very good reason for them to be like going out, you know, like di outwardly directed at some point, which at that, you know, and then it was no longer going to be the case. So this was an issue. And it's also an issue because, you know, Nepal is, is very um, poor and is kind of this, you know, weird case of a kind of Hindu kingdom that never got incorporated into the British Raj, but is between, you know, geographically between uh, India and China. So, you know, the Chinese have an interest as well, and, and they were putting pressure on the Nepali government to do something about these, you know, this situation. And, um, yeah, so actually the, uh, the leader of the... Um, the kind of the last stragglers of this operation, Mo the most of them, it was gradually worn down over a period of years in the in the seventies. Um, the kind of general in command on the Tibetan side, um, you know, he didn't he didn't want to go fight India's wars in Bangladesh, and he didn't want to just acquiesce, and he didn't see anything for him. You know, all he had known for decades, he was actually one of the, um, so when the when the CIA, like when they first got involved, uh, they trained two teams from Saipan, on, on Saipan that they inserted into Tibet. Um, the first team stayed for a while, and they were the ones who were directing the supply drops. The second team basically all died <laughs> they uh one guy got hyperventilated on the um the uh on the drop and he couldn't make it he tried to come in from pakistan over land and uh very close to the meeting up with his team he got spotted by the chinese and, and gunned down um two of the other members of the team it was a four-man squad two of the others were also killed by the chinese more you know very soon after landing in tibet wangdu was the name of the last guy who remained on the second team and he's the guy who ended up leading the the uh, these Mustang guerrilla forces. So he he all he had known was heartbreak and tragedy and war and his people being you know slowly genocided out of existence and culture destroyed and monasteries bombed and you know there's all kinds of atrocity propaganda about what the Chinese did to the Tibetans. I know some Tibetans who um, were tortured by the Chinese. I don't know that I necessarily believe all of the 
you know, stories of, you know, various kind. I mean, you know, maybe, I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm aware of other instances in the 20th century of atrocity propaganda being used in, in a way that I don't, you know, I'm just saying it, it doesn't really matter. The point is this guy Wangdu, um, you know, was the, he decided, made the decision that he didn't want to, um, to give up his weapons. So he, he and a couple dozen of his guys tried to uh, flee from Mustang across Tibet into India, ran into a Chinese encampment, turned around and fell into a Nepali ambush. It was actually Nepalese military forces that killed the last leader of the Tibetan resistance. And that was that. Are there a lot of like uh, I don't I don't know how to call them this I guess veterans of this period still running around in Nepal and India who uh, give interviews on the subject or you know where there not a lot of survivors uh, and I, on top of that did the Chinese security services or the Chinese intelligence services after you know 1976 did they go hunting for a lot of these guys if they had fled into Nepal or, or India? Uh, you know, did they try and pursue them as a uh, counterintelligence operation? So um, very few are alive today. There, there's another book. I, it's actually, you know, I when we were discussing reading material for this, I, I, I mentioned it. And then I was looking over it again. I was like, oh, this is just terrible. I don't actually recommend anyone read this. It's terrible academic humanities style and it just sucks but there is a book called uh, arrested histories tibet the cia and the memories of a forgotten war by uh, carol mcgranahan and um it, it like it's kind of insufferable in its tone but it is useful in that she writing i guess in like the late 2000s maybe early 2010s i forget um she interviews some of the last remaining survivors and you know as of this recording that's eight I think I think it's 2012, so it's eight years ago. I, I can't imagine hardly any of these guys are are still alive now. Um, as far as the the second part of your question, um, I've never been to Nepal, so I I can't I don't know anything about that side of things. I I, I will say that in Dharamsala, where the Tibetan government in exile um, has you know has been set up for some time, where the Dalai Lama resides, um, and there's a lot of you know Tibetan stuff going on. I've I've spent a little time there. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a running joke, like, who's the Chinese spy? <laughs> like, cause it, it's just, you, you, you know, uh, you know, when, when you get, when you're at a restaurant and some random person asks you, you know, so Dalai Lama, you really like that guy, right? <laughs> like it, it's, you know, pretty, it, it can be pretty obvious and it's just very awkward and out of nowhere. Like, you know, people are trying to take the temperature of, you know, what's going on. And I guess that's fine. You know, China has legitimate security interests as well. It's not that I mine necessarily. I, I don't think they're trying to hunt down the, the veterans, though. They're just trying to make sure that their ironclad grip over Tibet remains ironclad. Well, my final question, unless Hans, did you have something else? Uh, well, I, I mean, I've heard of, um, to this day, there's still, uh, you know, low-grade um, I don't know what to call it, counterinsurgency maybe, or just, you know, shadow wars or just shadow intelligence operations between India and China on this subject. Uh, I believe oh, well over 100,000 Tibetans live in northern India. And um, there have been reports of occasionally there are 
quote unquote Tibetans who live in northern India who turn out to be spies for China. Um, and then there are, of course, uh, revealed operations every now and then where a, a Tibetan is uh, in living in Tibet is, is sending intelligence or sending parcels of something back to uh, Tibetans living in India. And this this, you know, like every year or every two years there's some kind of drama between China and India over this this Tibetan ethnic issue in the uh, in the north. I mean, I don't I don't really know if there's a uh, ever going to be a, a a solution to that. It seems like India and China are becoming more hostile against each other again. And you know, I, I expect that as the replacement program goes on, the uh, the population of Tibetans in India will probably double or maybe even triple. Uh, yeah. Well, one one thing. I mean, it's an. It's. A, I mean, who knows? And I don't want to. I don't want to prognosticate and be wrong, but um, Tibetan control over China is not going anywhere anytime soon, and may well, you know, persist past the point at which the indigenous Tibetan population of the Tibetan Autonomous Region no longer functionally exists. Now, I, I use the word Tibetan, the phrase Tibetan Autonomous Region, because. That actually, the the part of Tibet that that China calls Tibet or the TAR does not include most of Kham, um, and obviously you know, and then there's ethnically Tibetan areas of India, primarily the kingdom of Ladakh and um, and Sikkim, and uh, and also you know parts of elsewhere you know Dharamsala and elsewhere in northern India, like the foothills of the Himalayas, um, with a lot of ethnic Tibetans in them, so. As far as the long term kind of issue, I don't know. It's an interesting, I think it depends in a, to a large extent on where India goes. I mean, you know, I, I'm broadly, I, you know, I like the cut of Modi's jib, let's say. I don't mind Hindutva as an ideology, and I think it overall serves the people of India well. It, it, one thing that draws criticism from the international press so to speak um is you know it's kind of uh whatever let's say xeno you know the bad word would be xenophobic and and it focuses on you know the um the people of india in a certain way but the, the reality is india is extremely internally diverse i mean yes most people speak hindi but you have many tens of millions of people probably hundreds of millions you know people that that don't um or it's not their everyday language you know kerala is famously in the south is famously quite separatist in their orientations and india has a real problem in terms of you know there is no like because again historically there was no india in a much of the same way that there was no tibet it's just what we call india is the regions of the subcontinent and you know neighboring parts of you know around the subcontinent that were conquered by the british and incorporated into the british raj nepal was one of those kingdoms it just didn't get incorporated into the British Raj. Um, but the point I'm making here is it's conceivable, maybe even likely, that a, you know, a, India prides itself on being democratic and, and multicultural in certain ways. Um, they, they, they have very different ideas of what those words mean than the United States does. And let's hope that you know, they don't trend in the direction that the United States does, particularly as regards the meanings of those words. But I think there is a, at least the possibility for a space for the Tibetan people to continue to exist as, you know, something like a coherent ethnic group within the bounds of geopolitical India. 
um, at least for some period of time. Well, that's uh, relevant to my final question, which is what do you think about the possibility of after uh, Tenzin leaves us that the 15th Dalai Lama will potentially be born to either Nordic or Alpine <laughs> I, the 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 uh, there have already been. You know, I think it was uh, ethnic Tibetans who um, were living in the West, but there have been like reincarnated lamas. They're called tulkus, or, or the, uh, the sort of higher rank would be called rinpoches, um, that have been born to you know people living outside Tibet and India. Um, I, I think that's not unlikely, frankly, at, at least in the long term. Um, but to sort of answer the 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 less tongue-in-cheek version of your question. Um, following the passing into Parinirvana of the current 14th Dalai Lama, I mean, he sort of left it open as far as, like, maybe I won't come back at all. Uh, that needs to be read in the geopolitical context where it is, whether he actually does or not, and irrespective of what he says along those lines, it is, I, I'm saying, I mean, it is 100% guaranteed that the Chinese are going to say we have the 15th Dalai Lama in much the same way that the Mongols, you know, had the fourth, the fourth Dalai Lama. Um, and for much the same reasons. And that will not be that whoever they pick is not going to be accepted by the Tibetan people living in exile. Um, as far as, you know, what else is going to happen? Uh, the, the, the current Dalai Lama, the, the actually, so to maybe bring this full circle to my historical overview, um, the the head of the Karma Kagyu lineage is called the Karmapa, and the current 17th Karmapa has really been groomed over the past few decades to take the mantle of leader of the Tibetan people in exile, at least spiritually. I mean, they, kind, they kind of formally introduced a split. I mean, all of this is sort of, you know, it's all LARPy because it's a government in exile. So none of, I mean, there's no political power really to be had, but to the extent that there's a, you know, continuity of Tibetan in, government in exile, um, they a few years ago they formally divested the Dalai Lama of his political power within the Tibetan government in exile. Um, but that still they they you know he retained his kind of spiritual authority or his role in the Tibetan government. Um, the the expectation for some time has been that the, basically the Chinese miscalculated because they've been playing this waiting game where they thought you know all this Tibetan independence stuff is going to die with the Dalai Lama. Uh, what they didn't anticipate was that the Tibetan people would rally around the Karmapa, which seems like the way things are headed. Um, so, you know, whether that actually happens or, you know, the Karmapa himself, he's still quite young. I think he's in his like 30s or early 40s. Um, he's a very, you know, great teacher and he's he's definitely got a good head on his shoulders. Um, so it's an inter definitely interesting to see what's going to happen there. But I, I what I expect is... The Chinese will say there's a 15th Dalai Lama. That choice will, by their own 15th Dalai Lama, that choice will not be accepted. There, there may or may not be, if there is a 15th, a genuine, authentic 15th Dalai Lama, um, it may not happen for some time, for, you know, maybe 100 years, 200 years. Maybe he will be born in the West. Now that you found your paradise this is your kingdom to command You can go outside and polish your car Or sit by the fire in your Shangri-La Here's your reward for working so hard Gone are the lavatories in the backyard 
Gone are the days when you dreamed of that car. You just want to sit in your Shangri-La. Put on your slippers and sit by the fire. You've reached your top and you just can't get any higher. You're in your place and you know where you are. In your Shangri-La. Sit back in your old rocking chair. Seven shillings a week. 